0: the smart connector podcast which looks at the power of connection in business and life featuring solo episodes as well as a range of exciting interviews with entrepreneurs across multiple sectors we offer tips and advice to build your impact wealth and success attract others for all the right reasons and become a smart connector the architect of your amazing business and life
1: Smart Connector podcast. I have such an exciting guest for you today, Sandy Hine. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So Sandy is a highly regarded negotiation instructor and a consultant with a background in law enforcement in the US. And she's skilled in hostage negotiation, crisis management, intelligence analysis, government and law enforcement, and she's got a BSc in criminal justice. And she began her career as a police officer in Alexandria, Virginia, and she wore many hats during her twenty-three years stint there, including ten years as a hostage negotiator. Can you imagine? I can't wait to talk to you about that, Sandy. Uh, <laughs> Um, she was also a certified instructor with uh, instructor with the Virginia Department of Criminal Justice Services, and she served on the training faculty of the Virginia Sexual and Domestic Violence Action Alliance. So, what an incredible pedigree! Now. <laughs> Since retiring from law enforcement in 2012, Sandy's gone on to write books, teach criminal justice to high school students, and train law enforcement agents across the country in several areas, including sexual violence, crisis intervention, and hostage negotiations. So this is going to be a very, very exciting interview, and I'm so (laughs) glad you could join us, Sandy. I'm happy to be here. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so so Sandy um, so just obviously I've given you a, a, a bit of a sort of potted history but um, you know really love to just talk about where you are now and what you're what you're currently up to before we get into it so
2: um, I, I started with the Black Swan group actually back in 2011 I was still a police officer and yeah. so I've, I've done things with them off and on and then when I retired in 2012, from an injury, not my choice. I would still be there today if I could. Yeah. Um, but I went on to teach high school. And then the Black Swan group called me and said, we need you back full time. We want you full time. We've got you know things going on. We want you to be a part of it. So it took me two years to finally say, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and so now I'm with the Black Swan group and I, I couldn't be happier. It's the greatest group of people to work with. And we are reaching out to so many different people in so many walks of life. So it started out as a business negotiation kind of venture with, with Chris Voss and his, his book never split the difference. And it has morphed into coaching clients who are coming to you for help with, um, um, with relationships, with dealing with their kids. It's, it's become more like a lifestyle, a communication style almost. And yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. The, um, the kind of it's not really a beginner class but we call it an applying class I just finished it's an eight-week class we just finished last week and a few of the people in there have started calling it the BSG lifestyle because it wow. has affected so many areas of their life not just their their work and their negotiation but you know dealing with family members and um, you know spouses and we've I've gotten a couple emails saying that I saved a few marriages so it's really wow. it's, yeah it's kind of all-encompassing it's it's um more than i thought it was going to be so it's pretty exciting to be that instructor and coach that teaches people these skills that not only affects their business and their sales but affects their their overall life so it's pretty amazing i'm enjoying it. Yeah.
1: oh yeah yeah i that, that's really fantastic because i think People often think that negotiation obviously it has a it plays a, a very very significant and life changing role in terms of some of the stuff that you've been doing, like hostage negotiations. We are going to talk about that, mm-hmm. but also I think people think negotiation is it's a business skill, and obviously mm-hmm. it is. You know, if you're if you're selling or you're uh, you know you've got a, a contract that you're that you're in the middle of um, dealing with and negotiation has a very, very important part to play. But as you said, um, negotiation is a skill for life as well, isn't it?
2: It is because people don't realize how often they are actually in a negotiation. Um, if if the person that you're dealing with or you want something or need something, you're actually negotiating, no matter how small it is, it could be, you know, um, getting your kid to eat their dinner. I mean, you want them to eat their dinner. Therefore, you're negotiating about it. So if you want or need something or if the person you're dealing with wants or needs something from you, you're actually negotiating. So more often than you think.
1: Yeah. And so many people um, do that very badly. I mean, they don't negotiate. They just like they'll hit you over the head with a hammer and say, do it my way. It's my way or the highway or they will just uh, retreat from the challenge and just give way. In my experience, that tends to be what humans do, right?
2: Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, what people don't realize is, you have to start the situation out right. You can't come in with an iron fist. It really just doesn't work. It doesn't work with your kids. It doesn't work with your spouse. It definitely doesn't work at work. And as a police officer, it never worked that way for us. So Mm -hmm. the best police officers are the ones that can go out there and, you know, relate to someone on um, an emotional level and get what we call that trust-based influence, because that's what you need to get cooperation or information from somebody, that's what you need. And so, you know, police officers, police officers all over the country can actually really use more training in that respect, but, mm-hmm. um, and we're working on that. So uh, I didn't mention this to you before, but um, we're we're working on doing some law enforcement training to kind of um, reinforce their interactions with the public and make them more positive. And so we're 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 in the process of putting something together for that. So I'm, I'm very excited about that too, because you know law enforcement 23 years of my life spent as yeah. a law enforcement officer is a, a long time. And yeah. so you know for me getting getting the police to be seen in the through a better lens, especially in the United States right now, would be amazing. And I think getting to them and getting them their communication uh, abilities a little sharper would help that tremendously.
1: I'm sure that you get a mixed bag just as you do over here. You probably get some police officers who are naturally good negotiators and good communicators and you probably get others who are pretty poor. So I would imagine that um, training is is going to be extremely useful.
2: Yeah you, I mean you know you have bad apples in every profession. It's mm. not just you know I, I'm and I, I found this out when I went into teaching because there are bad teachers. they are bad doctors. Yep. they are bad lawyers. There, I mean, they are bad apples in every bunch. It's yep. just that when police officers do something, it just, it tends to be life or death. Unfortunately, that's just yes. what you deal with as a law enforcement officer. So it gets publicized, you know, very broadly all over the place. Everybody hears about it. So yes. the, the sad thing is they don't hear about the good things that officers do. They hear about the bad things and then everybody associates every police officer with the bad thing that was publicized, you know, five states away from where you are. And then all of a sudden, all the police officers are, are lumped in that, you know, that that same little barrel with the one bad officer. And it it doesn't allow us the opportunity to kind of, you know, bring citizens around to see that we're just people. We're just people too. We just have a harder job than some. So, you know oh,
1: absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so so what did your career in law enforcement teach you about the importance of negotiation, Sandy? Well it opened
2: my eyes mainly to um to how people don't communicate, honestly, because you, you figure every time you go out on a scene somewhere, you're looking to get information from someone or cooperation from someone. And sometimes that's really hard to do, even when someone actually calls you to help them. And then you go, and when you go, they don't honestly want you there. They know they need you, but they don't want you there. So it was a strange learning curve um, to be able to deal with you know the, the human nature response to, to life in general, and to be able to go into someone's house as a police officer and try to Calm down a situation when you're, you're on their turf and they may not want to listen to you, even if they call you. So it's really, really important to, you know, when you're going out to try and help somebody like that, their, their emotions are through the roof at that point. Yes. And one thing that I realized is you can't deal with people when they're like that. They don't hear you. So you've got to take their emotions and bring them down because when their emotions are high, their rational thinking is really low. So if you get some of those emotions out, you can raise up their rational thinking and it helps you work on whatever their problem is so much easier.
1: Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. So how do you do that? I mean, I'm thinking about some of the things that I've seen on, on TV and obviously uh, we do have armed response units here in the UK, but on the whole, um, Most um, police officers don't carry guns, but over in the US, obviously, there are more guns and it Mm -hmm. must be pretty scary, I would imagine, to be on the front line of policing there and you must be... I think, um, you know, for your for your life at times. And so in those kind of situations where which can be very volatile and particularly where there are weapons around that can be, you know, they can they can actually take away life. How on earth do you bring the emotional temperature down?
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, there are a lot of different skills you can use. Um, One of them is just showing deference to the other side and you make the situation all about them and you don't go in and say, I need you to do this, 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 and this. I mean, obviously, if someone's got a gun pointed at you, there's going to be a little bit different response because you have to get immediately to that issue. But yes. if someone is volatile in any way, and if they have a weapon anywhere near them, you kind of have to get them to calm down. And the way to do that is to, you know, let them feel heard and let them feel understood. And there okay. are several different, you know, yeah, that's that's what most people want. Human nature response is everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants to feel understood so you have to put the brakes on you can't go in there into a situation and try to rush to get things done now if there's shooting involved or injuries involved that's a whole different issue but if you are going to a situation even if you know someone is armed you have to watch out for your officer safety but at the same time you have to try and reach them on 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 a purely emotional level and show deference to them and stay curious about why they're in the position that they're in, what got them there. And when you deal with that, you open up the door for them to tell you all kinds of stuff. And you'd be surprised by not asking anyone questions, which is what what our skill set does is we don't ask questions. We only ask questions to help people formulate thought in their mind. Otherwise, we use what's called labels or mirrors with no question buzzwords. Because people who are in a, a high state of agitation, they don't want to be asked questions. Um, so we use a label instead with an upward inflection, not asking them anything, but they're giving us all kinds of information because they don't feel interrogated. So, you know, there, there are so many different ways you can do it. Our, our skills are so kind of all encompassing and, um, bottom line is you're a human being and your mindset is huge. If you go in with a curious mindset, And you try to figure out what's going on and you don't get defensive because as a police officer, I've had so many things said to me, a few, I had to go ask somebody what they meant because people talk crap to you all the time, seriously. And so, I mean, there were things being said to me when I first came on the police department and all I could think was, I don't even know what that is. So I had to go (laughs) ask somebody. So, um, you know, you, you can't get defensive about that. You just have to expect it. And so as soon as you let go of having to be defensive or feeling attacked by people, and you just kind of wonder where it's coming from, why they feel the way they feel, you'd be surprised at how quickly you can get things to calm down. If you just let them, you kind of let them wail on you if you need to, you know, verbally, just let them go. And then once they got it all out, usually you can get them to calm down.
1: Yeah. And uh, as you said, that's a skill for life. Um, Obviously, those are going to be very highly charged situations when there's a police officer is called to a scene. But as you said, there's plenty of that. There there are plenty of situations where people lose their cool, lose their temper, say things they don't mean. Uh, I mean, if you've got kids, then we're all familiar with the way that kids okay. behave when they want something and you don't want it. And so, yeah, I completely get that. Fantastic skills for life. Um, so Sandy, what, what would you say are the most important rules of negotiation success then?
2: Well, first and foremost, be curious, stay curious. Um, if you stay curious about the other side, it's hard for you to get angry because they don't go together. If you're uh-huh. curious, Anger stays away, which helps you not become defensive and attack back because the last thing you want to do when someone attacks you is actually attack back because then it's like you just created this this nuclear war and you basically can't calm it down at that point. So you have to be the one to stay in your seat and to just kind of take what they're giving you and listen. Part of the problem with people is they don't listen. And when you're listening on a very shallow level, you're missing a lot. So, you know, one of the things we talk about in our training is the different levels of listening, five different levels of listening. If you're not paying attention to what's happening on the other side, you can't influence them. And the only way you get their behavior to change is by getting a trust-based influence. And that's what causes that behavior change to happen. And we know it works. Um, We know it works because in law enforcement in the United States, I don't know other countries, but I know in the United States, we have a 93% closure rate with dealing with hostage barricade situations, which means 93% of the time, we're able to influence the person inside to do what we want. Mm. So let me ask you this, Jane, little little pop quiz for you. As a law enforcement officer, when we are dealing with someone in a hostage barricade situation, what are we selling them? We're selling them something.
1: So I think uh, we're we well, You must be trying to sell them um, a release of the hostage, right? That's what that's isn't that what people always want from that situation? To just yeah. stop stop taking hot this person hostage and release them, right?
2: So we we um, yeah we we want them to do what we want them to do. So it's funny because I ask this question at the trainings that we do, and I get things like you're selling them freedom, you're selling them hope you're selling them trust, you know, all these different things. And then they, when, when we actually say what we're selling, people just go, wow, we're selling jail time. We're selling jail time. 93% of the time people are buying it because we use the skills well enough. We reach that level of empathy where we have a trust-based influence and they come out even knowing they're going to jail. And there's only 7% of the time that we don't get to them only 7%. So I mean, if you're, if you're a salesperson, probably the best, the best of the salespeople that will watch this maybe have a 40 to 50% closure rate. And that's, that's probably, (laughs) yeah, that's, that's really good. But when you look at it compared to the high stakes situations that we're in, and we have a 93% closure rate, there's something to be said for what we're doing. You know, the skills work. (laughs)
1: That's (laughs) really, really amazing. So let's get on to talking about hostage uh, negotiation because um, there is no higher stakes situation than that I would imagine Um, you know in some instances if you don't manage to get that right people end up getting killed don't they yes Um, so could you you give us some uh, idea of a situation a case study where your negotiation skills did actually dramatically impact the outcome it's
2: really hard to, to talk about one case. I mean, I went on so many things that um, it's just, they all kind of flow together, but you know, as a hostage negotiator, you go through things where you get on the scene and you make a call in right away. And within 10 minutes, the person's walking out the front door, you have those, and then you have some that go five or six hours. And then you have some that go 10 or 12 hours. And you have some that go 24 hours and you have to switch out with another team. And, um, you know, it's the, the ones that stand out to me are, you know, one where it didn't go well for me. I had one, one that didn't go well for me. And, and actually though, it was one of my best negotiations, according to my negotiation supervisors. Um, I was right on. It's just that it didn't, it didn't end well in the end. And, you know, the way for me, it didn't end well, the way we look at it in hostage negotiations is if, no, no citizens are injured and all the police officers go home safe. And the only guy that doesn't manage to make it out is the bad guy. Then that's considered a success because the bad guy has the choice to make. Okay. They, they either come out or they don't. And that's their choice. It's yeah. You know, we, we give them all the options and, and they, they make the choice. So, but there are a few that, um, went really well for me. And, you know, one in particular that I, that I think of often, I think it's because there was a, a young girl involved. But there was a father who kept his daughter after visitation was over. He didn't take her back to her mom. And so her mom called and said, he has her. He won't, you know, he won't bring her home. And so she went to the house and he wouldn't let her in. He wouldn't let the daughter come out. So she calls the police. So we get there and within about an hour, he sent his daughter out. So you know, I basically said, you're, you're putting her in the middle of this. You know, she, she, she's a kid. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't understand. And this is not helping anything for to, for you to keep her in this situation with all these police officers. And he said, you know what, you're right. And he let her walk out the front door, but then he slammed the door and locked it and wouldn't come out. So now we went from a hostage situation to a lone barricade situation with someone who was suicidal. So oh. it changes your gears. So, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, hard to explain. It's a different negotiation, but it's the same negotiation. You're using the same skills essentially, but now you're in um, suicide prevention mode, which Uh is exhausting. I mean, getting hostages out is exhausting, but suicide prevention mode when you're dealing with somebody is completely exhausting because you have to be on, 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 not missing anything that they say and, you know, basically cataloging everything. And so that one took, that one took about six hours. And he ended up coming out. And the only reason he came out, he basically said, I'll only come out for you. And I said, Well, my rules are that I can't be there when you come out. If you come out, I will, wherever they take you, I will come see you, I promise. And so that's the only reason he agreed to come out. And so, you know, I'm nowhere near him at this point. I'm, you know, three blocks away in what we call our negotiations operations command center. And so, you know, I wasn't there. So there's no way I could be there when he came out. But when they took him out, they put him in the police car. And when I came over, Um, the officer cracked the window for me and we had this nice little, you know, two or three minute conversation where he thanked me, you know, for basically talking sense to him (laughs) and um, you know, and it ended well. And that's what you want because the, the misconception about hostage situations is that it's a one-off that Mm -hmm. we'll never see this person again. But in reality, we do see these people again. And oftentimes it's not in our same jurisdiction. It's somewhere else but they do get dealt with again and if they have a bad taste in their mouth from dealing with the first negotiator they're not going to be able to be influenced by the second one because they didn't leave them with a positive feeling and that's the goal is you influence them to do what you want but you also leave them feeling positive at the end of the interaction because that that helps if they get into the situation again you know another time
1: so Yeah, that, that, that is um, amazing. I can only imagine uh, what that situation must must have been like, um, Sandy. Um, I'd love to hear more about your work with the uh, Virginia Sexual and Domestic mm-hmm. um, Violence Action Alliance, because that sounds amazing. How did that, you? It was amazing. It, it was an amazing
2: time. It's when um, I had been doing adult sex crimes for a few years and. I was with an organization called VASA, which is, which was Virginians Aligned Against Sexual Assault. Mm-hmm. And so um, I did trainings and things with them. And then they decided that they were going to basically pair up with our domestic violence um, advocacy group for the state. So we all got together and it took about a year worth of meetings for us to come up with a name and to come up with um, you know the, the, the mission statement and all that stuff that we came up with. And so it ended up being that Virginians um, uh, sexual and domestic violence action alliance. It's a mouthful. Um, so we, we came up with that. And then once that was formed, we went around the state doing training in a lot of different things. Um, and one of the main things, well, two main things I was involved in through them. One was a training, training the trainers. In other words, we created a class that would bring people from around the state together to train them so that they could go back and train their respective organizations. Mm-hmm. Um so that was that was pretty important to me. And then the other thing that I ended up doing um through them was I was on um then governor Kane's commission on on sexual violence he's since become a senator but then I was on his commission for sexual violence and basically that commission goes around the state and finds out what's happening and then makes um suggestions and sets protocols for how things should be ha- handled moving forward, which really um, really changed things in Virginia a lot because it it changed the way that people addressed sexual violence victims, which needed to happen because we didn't have a very victim-centered approach. And through this commission, we were able to do that, is is make it more trauma-centered, victim-centered, instead of worrying about the investigation first and the prosecution first, we worried about the victim first, and that's what needed to happen. So... It was, I'm proud of the time I spent with them and the time I spent training with them. I've trained with them for years, probably 10 years. I trained with them even after I left the police department, I was still doing training with them. So um, it was, it was an amazing feeling to be a part of, of setting the protocol for the state and how the state handles, you know, sexual violence cases. So I was honored.
1: Yeah, that's an amazing thing to do, and you've written a book, haven't you? As well, Sandy, a couple of books, haven't you, on yeah. that thing? Yeah, like
2: to- but, yeah. So the one, um, and the the title is is a little rhetorical. Um, you know, why aren't we shaming offenders instead of blaming victims? It was basically just to get people thinking, because honestly, shaming offenders is not any better than blaming victims, because you're still not you're still not getting to the crux of the issue by doing either one of those things. Um, But what I found when I was working, and I worked adult sex crimes cases for 11 or 12 years. And what I was finding is that in non-stranger cases, we were not getting good prosecution. And one of the main reasons was because people wanted to blame the victim. And, you know, I I have my beliefs as to why that happens. But I think the main reason is because people who are on a jury who are watching these cases, they don't want to admit that that was the the suspect's fault. They don't want to admit that because what happens in a non-stranger case is they know each other. So everybody on that jury, all they think about, because this is once again, human nature, well all they think about is this could happen to me because she knew him and she trusted him. And now he's the boogeyman and anybody, anybody in my life now could be the boogeyman because she knew him. So, in order to keep that denial alive, they weren't, they weren't convicting anybody.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. That's so funny, yeah. isn't it? The way that human, the human mind works. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, um,
2: so victims were, were very oh. unsatisfied and didn't feel good because, you know, they, their cases weren't getting, weren't getting, they weren't getting guilty verdicts. In other words, they were getting, you know, not guilty verdicts all the time. And for, for some victims, that was okay because they felt good that we fought for them, that we believed them, that we took their case to court and that made them feel better that they were believed and that they, you know, it was taken seriously. And then other victims, it did not go well when they didn't get that not guilty verdict. So, you know, we've tried, and I was involved with another program called trauma to trial. And that's a, uh, another thing that I helped create in Virginia with a group of, you know, I mean, amazing people, and they still do the training across the state, and they, they do it together with law enforcement, um, Commonwealth Attorney's Office, and victim advocates from each jurisdiction, and they train them how to work together to get a more successful outcome for victims, whether it's prosecuting or not, because it's not always prosecution. Sometimes victims don't want that. They just, hi, puppy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <there is something. laughs> That's fine.
2: Um, so, yeah, a lot of times victims feel okay just feeling believed and just, um, you know, just getting their story out there and being heard and, and feeling good about what's happening for them. Other victims, unless they get a guilty verdict, it doesn't work well for them. So we had to find some way of doing things that helped us get better outcomes for victims and one of the ways that we do it is with um that we were doing it thanks i'm no longer doing that but um is using what we call an accusation audit which is a black swan skill it wasn't called an accusation audit at the time because this was years before it was actually you know kind of got figured out but we would have the prosecution introduce all the negative things about the victim in their opening arguments which sounds ridiculous because you're you're turning a negative light on yourself and you're pointing all these things to the victim saying she's bad because of this 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 and this and at first and still there are a number of prosecutors who are refusing to do this lawyers are the ones who hate that skill by the way because they feel like it's admitting liability yeah. <laughs> so they don't like you to use it yet. <laughs> so yeah so it's like huh. but the the prosecution would get up and say you're going to you're going to hate this victim wow you're going to think you're going to think this victim was irresponsible for going out and getting drunk
1: Wow, that's just fascinating. It's just amazing yeah. work that you've been doing there, Sandy. It really is. Well, so, the, the
2: juries heard that and then they convicted because they all the negative things got taken out at the very beginning and the defense yeah. couldn't use it against the victim later because they already the prosecution had already told them all those negative things. So it took the wind out of their sails and we started getting a lot more successful prosecutions out of that. So oh, well,
1: that's that's great news. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, how, how can negotiation actually help when dealing with violent or maybe criminally sexual predators? Well,
2: they like to be heard and understood just like everybody else. So, um, when you go in a a lot of, um, police officers, detectives, a lot of them feel like these are scum of the scum, right? The, The sexual predators are the worst. And so they go in so hardened because they can't deal with these people that a lot of times the interview doesn't go well. So what I found was after, you know, being in hostage negotiations for years, when I would interview these sexual predators, sexual offenders, if I just did what I did when I was in a hostage situation, they had very good I mean, I was able to influence them essentially. Mm-hmm. I was able to um, allow them to say what they needed to say and get everything out and I got more confessions by using the skills to do that than any other method that I tried. So um you know empathy what we're using when we use these skills is called tactical empathy. Empathy is what you're shooting for. So it's tactical. We call it tactical because we're dealing with people that we don't like. Yeah. I mean, we're dealing we're dealing with people that we don't want to be nice to. Yeah. But if you use these skills in a tactical way, and you think about it as kind of mental gymnastics that you're you're playing with the other side, um, yes. it's easy to to go in there and use the skills to get that confession. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And you use your your. It's all about mindset. Once again, it's all about mindset and going in and um, you are making them feel like you want to hear everything they have to say, and you're curious about what's going on with them, and then they just yeah. talk. And once again. not using question buzzwords so they don't feel interrogated you're just talking to them and then they all of a sudden start telling you a bunch of stuff before they realize what they're doing and Uh yeah so it was um using those skills was extremely successful for for me and so you know when we started doing the training we kind of trained that in some of the training we did around the state this is what you do this is how you talk to them this is how you get them to open up not by being mean which is what you want to do because yeah, you don't like those people. I mean, I can pretty much tell you almost 100 percent of the time I did have I had no good feelings toward the person on the other side of the table for me when I was no. interviewing them. <laughs> so, yeah, but you have to let that go. You have to let that go, and you know, try and find something um, that you can say to them that kind of opens the floodgates and lets them know I want to hear what you have to say. You know, I yes. want to understand what's happening with you. And as soon as that happens, that's when you get all the good information
1: yes so. yes well and it makes a lot of sense i like that uh, phrase tactical empathy i'll i'll remember that because you know in in life i mean obviously i'm not in the police so i don't necessarily come across these people on a daily basis um but you know even in business we meet people who you know whose values are not aligned but maybe we need something from them and and so your tactical empathy as a tool is is it's very very helpful concept i think really. it
2: is amazing because yeah. you don't have to be nice to them you don't have to agree with them no um, you don't have to even you know like them but mm-hmm. tactical empathy will still work if you use it like you're supposed to use it
1: yep yep and i guess you've got to be very clear in your own mind that this is actually this is not letting myself down this is not nothing that it doesn't reflect badly on me but Mm-mm you know, this is, this is because we're heading towards a desirable outcome.
2: Yes. And the the quickest way to get there is through using tactical empathy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there, there are ways that you can use the skills. We always tell people at the end of a training, we always say go out and use your powers for good because there's a fine line between a trust-based influence and manipulation. And the only difference is the intent. If you intend to manipulate, then it's manipulation and you're not doing it the way that we want you to do it because we want, we want you to do it to have a trust-based influence. And that's the way that preserves long-term relationships too, whereas manipulation is not going to preserve any kind of long-term relationship because people always know when they're being manipulated.
1: Yeah, I mean I'm a I'm a marketer, so in, in our industry there's a lot of manipulation and there's also a lot of trust based influence and there's a big difference between the two. And as you said, it all comes down to the intention, right? So I completely yep. understand that. Um so um Sandy, what what are the lessons that you love to teach to young people when you train in schools? Because I know that's something that your is very close to your own heart as well. Mm-hmm.
2: Yes. Yeah, so um I was teaching in a high big like, after I retired, they came to me, they said, would you mind coming and helping us get this, this criminal justice program going in the local high school? And I said, sure. So I started working on it. We, we put all the lessons together. And then I realized that people in that school did not like the police at all. Oh. And so what I managed to do, and, and this was the part that was so important to me, is I taught them that one, police officers are people too, and that there are ways to communicate with the police that will be more satisfying for you than being obstinate or obnoxious and so (laughs) i taught them those communication skills we actually did a unit in in the part two class which is the more in-depth class we did a whole unit on hostage negotiations and they learned all these communication techniques and it never failed i would have kids coming back to me to visit me years after they graduated basically saying oh my gosh i did what you told me and this is what happened completely shocked that they could take these skills out and use them and make them work for them. So, you know, most important thing is letting them understand that police are people too. And they're not, it's not necessary for them to be afraid of them. It's necessary for them to know how to communicate with them. And so that changed a lot of things for a lot of kids. So that makes me really proud. And the second thing is just teaching them communication skills and they would go home and use them on their brothers and sisters on their parents and come back and say, did what you told me. And Oh my gosh, it worked perfect. And they would be so excited. So it was teaching them these communication skills that they can carry forward with them for life. And, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty amazing to see actually.
1: Yeah. Oh, that really is. That's absolutely fantastic when we can influence our young people, because we know that we're equipping them with skills for life, right? Which is just amazing. Right. Um, yeah. So I mean we've talked a bit about about your your book about um, offenders and offending, but you've also written a book about keeping you and your family safe in today's hectic world. Can, mm-hmm. can you perhaps summarize some of your favorite takeaways from that, Sandy?
2: Yeah, so that book was that book was funny because publisher came to me in January and said, "I need a book to put on my bookstand. It has to be little. Can you make it something about safety tips? And I said, sure. When do you need it? Well, it would be great if I could have it by May. And I was like, (laughs) I'm still in the process of writing the other book. And now you're saying, I need this book by May. So I said, I'm like, I said, I'll give it a shot. So um, I kind of scrambled and put it together. And it was kind of me just going back over my life and things that I learned, you know, growing up and going through college and different things that happened to me that kind of shaped who I was and why I wanted to go into police department, uh, police work. And how I dealt with my kids you know, when they were growing up. So the one thing that is probably the biggest takeaway from that is situational awareness. Always know what's going on around you. Always know where you are because if something goes wrong, you have to call 911. You can't give them a location. That's a problem. Uh-huh. You know, if you, they can't come help you if they don't know where you are. And if you don't know where you are, you can't tell them because we're not to the sophistication yet where we can take every single cell phone and automatically find their their geolocation i mean i have a feeling that'll be somewhere in the future but it's not there yet so you need yeah. to know where you are and it's it's important and so teaching my kids to kind of have that awareness of what's going on around them to pay attention to things that are happening around them and you know be ready to react to different things and just knowing how to be safe. You know, you have doors, you have locks on your doors, use them. They're there for a reason. You don't just leave your door unlocked, you know, lock the door. There's a reason the lock is there. So just, it was almost common sense things, but I got a lot of feedback from a lot of different people, especially around, um, around dealing with their kids when it came to, you know, something happens that you don't like, you can speak up, you're allowed, give them permission to say, yeah, you know, I don't want you to do that to me and give them kind of domain over their own body to be able to say, stop that. (laughs) And, you know, that has, that's changed a lot of people too, because a lot of parents don't realize that kids need permission to kind of buck the system if something bad happens. And if you give them that, they'll be safer for it. You know, they'll feel they'll, they'll be safer for it. So that was kind of my big thing.
1: Yeah, and I, I mean, I have three young people myself. I know we were talking about that. We both have three daughters, right, Sandy? But um, it's very it, it's very noticeable to me that this awareness of risk uh, becomes a little bit later in life. And I think the thing about young people, it's it's um, they need to be told really. They need to understand where the risks are and where the dangers are. And if nobody's talking to them about that, whether they listen or not um and mm-hmm. they're not going to have that awareness naturally are they
2: no and it's very easy because it's kind of like they always say if you're going to teach your kid a foreign language teach it you know in the first four years because their their minds are able to take in all of this stuff so uh-huh. it's the same with this you i mean my daughter my youngest especially when we would drive around through the city she would say that's Mima's house that's my school that's i you mean know, she and we would say where are we now and she would say we said where's this will you go that way so we made sure she knew and she was 3 so you can, you can really kind of program kids to be aware of what's going on around them and to watch out for themselves at a very young age. And it will work if you maintain. But you can also teach them the communication skills from the Black Swan group in the same way. And um, you know, that's something we're looking into also is, is helping kids learn these communication techniques because I think that it would do a lot to get rid of the bullies because yeah. they, you know they, they wouldn't be as prevalent if kids knew how to deal with them Oh in a no. way
1: <laughs> absolutely absolutely and you know bullying is an absolute scourge everywhere and it always has been amongst kids and so um you know it's just, just fantastic that that you are thinking about about that situation and how to make a difference and how to improve communications and mm-hmm. uh, you know I just think it, there's nothing more important than helping children communicate better and um, it's a shame that certainly over here I don't think those skills are really taught in schools at all not to have, you know any kind of advanced uh level. so yeah I think right. that's fantastic so um just like to talk a little bit more about about Black Swan Sandy because some of my uh viewers and listeners might not know very much about this organization but um it was founded by a guy who's written a very, very um, powerful book, right, um, called yes. Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss. Uh, yes. So would you, would you like to just give a bit of a plug for Black Swan? I know we've mentioned Absolutely. it earlier, but, but tell us <laughs> a bit more about what they do.
2: Yeah, so the Black Swan group was actually started by Chris and his son Brandon, um, and Brandon is pretty much um the co-author of never split the difference that didn't really get credited with it but he did a lot of work on that book so it's him and his dad together and um the book came out in 2016. the black swan group was already doing some of these uh, business negotiation techniques early on i mean i like i said i was with them in 2011 and we were already doing this stuff then They got all the stuff that we were using together in this book. They put it out in 2016 and it has gone crazy since then. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we, we do all kinds of corporate training. We do individual coaching, we do group coaching. And so what we're doing is we're taking these skills that were born out of hostage negotiations and we're making them um, friendly for business people to use and, And we're just literally just in the last year or so, we're realizing that it's 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 an overall communication technique that's helpful in other things also. Um, but our primary goal with the Black Swan Group was to help people in their business negotiations. Um, and that has been overwhelmingly successful. And now we're seeing that through feedback that we're getting from people that we work with, that it's having an overall impact on their lives just with communication techniques. And like I said, few people have told me, you saved my marriage, which is just bizarre when you think about it. Oh, and, and I'm like, <laughs> It's like, wow, okay, that's that's cool. But um, we, we have we have so many things coming up too. We have so many things just kind of going on for us. It's going crazy. And all I can say is check out our website black swan group. Um, and we have a blog that people can read. It's just advice. That's, I mean, you don't have to do anything to get the advice. Just click on the blog and you can read it. And there's all kinds of great articles in there about different things to do with negotiation. And you, know, you can check out that. You can go and, and check out what stuff we have coming up in our library. Um, one of the instructors, Derek Gaunt, who was actually my commander on my negotiation team. So we have a kind of a long working relationship together. He's written a book on leadership that has really taken off. It's, it's called ego authority failure. And it talks about um, basically how to be a better leader and how to lead using these same skills that we use in hostage negotiation and how, how it's so effective with the people who work under you. And we're getting a lot of feedback on that one too, basically saying how amazing it is. Um, You know, once they read the book and they realize, ah, I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing this instead. And it's changing the way that people supervise. So, you know, we have so many things happening at the black swan group it's really it's happening really fast so um you know in fact we're doing a lot for women now that um kind of i've been working on that and um we're, we're there's talk about a book there's been talk about a book for a few years now we're we're trying to get that stuff together but there's already a couple other books in the works so we're we're really adding quickly to our library um There's a class for women that's going to be coming out. My goal is before the end of the year. We've been working on it for quite some time, but um, we're hoping it comes out. It's an applying class, but it's only for women. So it's like a safe space for women to come in and learn how to use these skills. And, um, for a lot of different reasons, because there are a lot of these skills that work for women who receive inappropriate comments or, you know, unwanted advances. And we talk about that and how to handle it. So yeah, yeah. We, we that'll be a, a big thing for women coming up hopefully before the end of the year. So
1: yeah. A lot of women really need it because I think women don't really know whether to, you know, there's a fine line between laughing something off, laughing an inappropriate comment off, um, and uh reacting very aggressively or defensively or whatever, and I think women really are lost and I actually saw something today on LinkedIn that somebody posted um a, a well it was an advance really that somebody had made on LinkedIn messaging that was really very explicit and really horrible actually very inappropriate and there were a lot of people that were just laughing at it and saying oh that's really funny and you know and i you know i thought well this this isn't a laughing matter actually you know women do not want to be on a professional network uh, you know like linkedin and to have those kind of inappropriate advances but it happens a lot and Mm -hmm. uh Yeah. So I think there's a, there's a really big need for it. You know, women, women do need to know that they can, you know, they can step into their power and their strength and actually uh, behave appropriately in this situation without, you know, seeming like uh, a prude or, or sort of, um, you know, being told that they're acting inappropriately. So yeah. Agreed. Mm. So in the meantime, we
2: do have something that we do, um, usually every couple of months, it's called the women's power hour. Yeah. And so women can come in and we have a, only women allowed. And we go through what we call our fab five skills for females, which are the best ones for us to use that help us just in those situations like that. Um, yeah. and dealing with people and, you know, dealing with being maybe a supervisor at work as a woman and you're supervising men, you know, that's, it's an issue. So, um, women's power hour, check that out. I'm not sure when the next one is scheduled, but it'll be on our website You can find all yeah. kinds of really good stuff on the website.
1: Yeah, that sounds fantastic. So is it is it blackswan.com or what what, what is that? Um I think it's blackswanltd.com. LTD. If you just
2: L-T-D. if you just look at Black Swan Group or Chris Voss you'll be able to find it.
1: Okay, so, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, um so Sandy, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, which I'm sure sure they will after this amazing interview that we've had together, what's the best way for them to get hold of you personally?
2: Um Hmm. The best way to reach out to, to get me is through our info box on the website, because then you can just put, you know, this is, this is a message for Sandy and they'll they'll send it to me. Um, or if, you know, if you want some, some training or if you want some coaching or something like that, always the info box on our website. I think it's at the bottom. As soon as you hit the website, go all the way down. And I think it's right there and you can fill out what you're looking for or who you're looking for and they can get you set up get you to reach me if, if that's what you need.
1: Amazing. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us today on the Smart Connector podcast, Sandy. It's mm-hmm. been such a pleasure to interview you. I was looking forward to this interview for a long time. And um, and it's really been interesting and, and fascinating to have this discussion with you. And um, I wish you every every success. Thank you so much.
0: For listening in. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to rate and review my podcast as it will help me bring the power of connection to the world. I work one to one to help entrepreneurs ignite the power of authentic connection in their businesses and lives. I also help them accelerate their results through attracting and converting more of their ideal clients. And if this is something you'd like to do too, why not head on over to www.idealclientsuccess.com slash masterclass and I'll show you how.